All right, we are live, gentlemen. Well, we are live. Uh, I'm Ed Mullins, and welcome back to To The Point. Um, we are running a series of policing in America. Uh, with me, as usual, is Bill Cannon, and tonight we have the president of the Milwaukee PBA, Dale Borman. He's been a police officer in the city of Milwaukee since 1996, currently the president. Um, Dale, just like many of us around the country, I know you're experiencing a lot of extreme changes all based under the guise of reform. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sure your uh, cops in that city are struggling just as we all are. And I'm going to guess that the general public, uh, for the most part, wants police. They want to see the police in the street. They want safer streets. They want the feeling of security. Uh, but yet it seems that the, uh, the overwhelming uh, noise that's being made is sending a different message. Um, you know, recently in the, in your city, you had your common council um, in, implement a procedure where um, police officers are being removed from handling any calls regarding emotionally disturbed people, people with mental illness, and they, for the most part, want to send in social workers to handle this. Um, you know, are there any police answering those calls as of today, or are they completely removed from those types of calls? No, our police are still answering those calls. Um, we have uh, a team of officers that, at least at this point, are going to the calls, but they also have a social worker that responds with them. And um, right now they're going to that. But our Common Council, um, which we have 15 members on our Common Council and 13 are completely against the police department. They're trying to do anything and everything possible to uh, put money towards that type of program and then take our officers back away from that program. So eventually do we'll- them, Do any of them have any police experience whatsoever? I, the social workers, no. Um, no, I'm, I'm talking about the council members. Oh, um, no, none of them have a uh, police service or so they're uh, any experience. Police work, but they have no experience at it. Correct. Um, it, it, we do have a couple members that um, will call us and, and talk to us, which is good. And um, you know, I, I'm on speed dial with them, and I and I give them information whenever I can. Um, but you know, before a year ago, we had a couple members who would reach out to us and um, ask us some questions and it's crickets now. You, you just don't, you don't hear from them. And even, you know, some of them we supported and I, you know, I think it's fair to say that we supported them at that time and they've turned their back on us. And it's to the point that I can't support them again. And it, it's very, it's, it's very, it's very hard to say that, but, uh, it, that's just the way it is nowadays, unfortunately. Ultimately, they're really turning their back, not just on the police, but on the citizens of Milwaukee or in our case, citizens of New York by implementing these these policies without having, you know, did they consult with the PBA? Did they talk to any of your members to say, what do you think of this? And, you know, could this work? I mean, any, anybody sit with you to do that? No, uh, none of them have reached out to us. Right. So um, part, except for the two. But um, most part, they're sending policies down without knowing whether they're going to work. And even if there's resistance, no one's explaining these policies. Say, look, give us a chance and, and try to get it to work. Uh, anybody being brought on board? 
No, um, I, with the exception of the two, uh, they do ask us, but it's two of 15 that listens and wants to know what to do. The rest of the people, uh, the rest of those on the common council, they don't, my opinion is they don't even listen to the citizens. Uh, the citizens want law enforcement to be in their communities. They want them to respond to these assignments. They want them to take assignments from them instead of have citizens sit there for an hour, two, three hours waiting for somebody to show up. But the common council, they're not listening to them. Um, they have decided and they have the majority that they have decided that they're going to take that any money that they get and put it to the community pro, uh, programs. And um, it's been pointed out that it's probably not going to work uh, with these community programs, but they're still doing it. They're still giving the money out to uh, these organizations. And um, they're right now they're in the process of um, they did a 10% reduction on our department. Um, and I, it's very unfortunate, you know, some of these neighborhoods need us there. Some of these neighborhoods want us there. And like I said, they're just not listening at all. Right now with the social worker responding with the police, Herod, um, I mean, they're going to these assignments with the police or are they arriving and waiting for the police? Right now they're going with the police. Okay. Um, so anytime they go and talk to somebody who's having a crisis, they have an officer there right now. So just as a point of clarity is if they're going with the police, are they riding on patrol with the police or do they wait for the assignment and then everybody has to respond together? How, how does that work procedurally? They ride in the same squad with a dot with an officer. So, so you have an officer not, and a council. Would that be fine to just handle in a mentally ill for the night, all those calls or are there several cars out there with social workers in it? I, we have, I believe three cars, three or four cars that go out there and they handle all the mental health, uh, mental crisis issues that go on in the city. Um, most of the time one car works. Sometimes you have a second one if they're, if they're working. Um, but for the most part, there are only one squad that goes out to this stuff and try to deal with whatever they are handed. You know, Dale, if I could just, um, what this program is called the CAHOOTS program, and okay. it's modeled after a program in Eugene, Oregon. And uh, it's council adopted an unarmed first responder program to address calls for service that do not involve a threat to public safety. How do they know that? Are they have uh, a crystal ball that it's not going to involve a threat to public safety? That's what it appears to be. It appears everybody's got crystal balls and um, and, and it's very unfortunate that uh, these people who are unarmed going out dealing with uh, people having crises. And we all know um, a cri if you're having a crisis, you could, at the flip of a switch, become violent. <laughs> you're right. You can come after somebody. And it's very unfortunate that pe that people in leadership in the cities are doing this right now. Dale, are the social workers armed by any chance? They are not, no. They've been given ballistic vests or anything along those lines? They have been given a vest. Okay. And what about any kind of training should things, you know, go, you know, bad? I mean, you and I respond to a job, something happens, we have a third person. Uh, they've been instructed what to do as we then go to handle that job. 
I can only assume that they were given that training, um, right. but I'm not 100 percent sure. But uh, you know, they have an officer standing there right with them. You know, I guess that's the best you can do for somebody who's unarmed dealing with with things like this. Well, you uh, know, we know from being sergeants. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm saying we know from being sergeants and going to literally hundreds of EDB, EDP calls, mostly disturbed person. I understand that that's politically incorrect terminology now. But anyway, that's what they called it when I was on the job, emotionally disturbed. Now it's, I think they cleaned it up and said emotionally distressed person, right? But we all know how unpredictable those calls are. And it can turn on a dime and become a life-threatening situation. So how these civilians can tell you that these well-trained uh, social workers are going to be able to read this situation better than a street-savvy cop is beyond stupidity. I, and I, I agree. You know, I've been on just short of 25 years. And when I was in patrol, um, I would have to go to several of these calls. And, you know, the you think things are nice and calm for a minute and it switches on you and you're fighting with somebody or somebody pulls a knife or, you know, anything. And next thing you know, you have to put hands on somebody. And, and, Quite frankly, I don't know how a, a civilian who's not carrying any a gun or mace or OC or anything like that, I don't know how they can go to the assignments and hope that they're going to leave that assignment alive. Um, I, I, I don't know how. I don't know how they can do that job. Look, for the most part, I think we could all agree that the majority of those jobs are handled pretty much one, two, three. I mean, for the most part, there's a family member around something happens, you're able to talk to them, it may take a little bit longer and we don't deal with violence. The, the question is going to lie in what happens when that particular job goes bad. And you are now, as police officers, we're dealing with um, the individual and we're now dealing with the person who's with us who could be in the way um, and we have to react. It could become a compromising situation. I, I don't think we can really um, analyze it until we start to see the ramifications of what takes place. Uh, if, if we start to see these social workers getting assaulted, getting attacked, and, and someone's going to get killed, I think we can all agree somewhere in the country it's going to happen. It happens to police officers. Um, that's going to become the stopgap for whether this works or not. The question is going to be, are the elected officials going to stand behind it? Or they'll probably blame the police the way it's going. Oh, absolutely. They're going to blame the police. Everything is blamed on the police. You know, it, you're absolutely correct. I think, um, unfortunately, um, well, I, I think the police get blamed for everything right now. Um, that's a lot of um, that's the chatter out there. That's the way things are being done. And anytime something goes bad, the police get blamed for it. And um, I don't want to see anybody get killed. Um, but I think you're right. I think at some point uh, somebody's going to get uh, killed um, or seriously hurt or or whatever. And what do you do at that point? And, you know, right now, at least here in, in the city of Milwaukee, it appears our common council is sitting on their hands and they don't want to hear that. They don't want to hear that possibly something's going to happen. Well, the reality of it is that it happens to police officers. It happens every year across the nation and really across the globe to police officers. So to think that it's not going to happen 
is is really foolishness on the people that are are taking that viewpoint. Um, you know, sadly, as we sit here, we know that by the end of this year, other police officers are going to die somehow. Just it's part of what happens. It seems to be happening a lot lately because we're being attacked by everyone. But these particular jobs become life-threatening in a matter of seconds. So to think that it's not going to happen, it really shame on those people for, for um, you know, thinking that. Yet you're not putting people in a, in, in a safe environment when you believe that you're just entering Disney World. It's just not the way. Right. Well, you know, Ed, when, when the police have to use in these circumstances deadly physical force on an EDP, it's always reported that something went horribly wrong. It has something to do with the training. No, it could have just been that something went horribly wrong on the part of the EDP that used deadly physical force against the police officers, and they were required in kind to protect their own lives to respond that way. And Correct. you can't predict when something's going to go horribly wrong, as a lot of these journalists can, and a lot of these politicians can predict it with tremendous accuracy, you know? Right. Uh, no, you, you're you're correct. I, it's a very unfortunate uh, situation, and you know, again, I, I wish nobody would get seriously injured or die. But you're you're right. I think eventually, unfortunately, something's going to happen. Look, hopefully, for the most part, it works out, and um, you know, people are are being helped. But I think that we live in a world of reality, and you know, for many people, I mean, one of the questions I have for you is. You know, this was put together for the purpose um, to deal with people who pose a threat. Um, and it kind of segues right into what we were just talking about. Who determines what a threat is to public safety? Who made that determination? Um, that's a good question. I, I think the officers have to determine it um, and or those who are working the streets have to determine what is a threat and what's not. And um, it, it's Unfortunately, I don't think a citizen can actually determine that for an officer. It's well, the officer that works the street that has to decide that. The, the council put this together, and part of their language, it, it read, including those that involve persons who are not presenting a threat to public safety. So the reverse of it is, if it, we're going to deal with the people not presenting a threat, then who determines what a threat is? So they don't clarify that in what they're bringing up. Um, I agree with you, you know, riding in a patrol car, um, we will determine what that threat is, but they created a piece of legislation without defining that. Um, and it's kind of wide open as to what that threat may be. You know, it, there's many ways of determining a threat, but they left that open. Well, you know, Ed, that's a good, that's a good uh, point because Roaming the streets of our city, and not just our city, but many cities across the country, are severely mentally ill people that are assaulting people every single day. And to a police officer, yes, that's a threat to public safety. To a politician, that's just a mistake they made by emptying the mental facilities and putting them on the street. Now, if I'm correct, didn't city council bypass state law and they demoted the chief along the way? They did, Chief Morales. Okay. Um, they uh, uh, actually, our uh, Fire and Police Commission um, decided to uh, issue directives to the chief, uh, Chief Morales, uh, to get certain things done. And the list was completely um, 
it was it was very a long list and chief morales did everything he could to uh complete that list um he did an excellent job of uh, trying to take care of uh any questions they have um but uh the fpc as we call it um they decided to uh demote him right at a meeting i think everybody was completely shocked that they did it um we all had a feeling it was going to happen uh but the fpc decided to uh demote him uh down the captain from uh chief and uh i think it was a big mistake of what they did um and right now the fpc is going to end up uh having to pay out on it and um you know i guess that's good for chief morales but i think it's extremely bad for the city of milwaukee and the officers that patrol the street they lost a, they lost a leader um who looked out for the officer and um we got along with him um i've known him probably most of my career and um you know he, he was a good ally uh for things that we needed uh to take care of to make sure our officers were taken care of and uh you know the fpc decided to uh demote him and it was very unfortunate now i'm making an assumption here and if you know um morales i'm guessing is hispanic he is yes okay so we want a diverse police department we have a hispanic chief um you know we strive to get through the ranks he came up through the ranks i'm assuming he did yes we get him to this point and then he is removed my understanding was because they didn't like the way he deployed personnel during black lives matter protests am i correct on that that's probably one of the uh reasons why they did it and in some of the research I've done, there's a, a member of the commission, Stephen Duvogus. Yes. And I understand that he's had allegations against him for a sexual assault. Were they tied to Morales? I mean, was there motive behind that? Um, I, Stephen Duvogus is a, he was our chairman of the uh, Fire and Police Commission. Um, he's a lawyer by trade. Um, and he actually represented a uh, an event, uh, a real estate investor uh, on a sexual assault complaint. Um, they called the uh, the investor in to talk to him, and De Stephen Devogas showed up as his attorney, as this guy's attorney, and uh, the detective actually had issues with Stephen Devogas being there because the chairman of our FPC pretty much runs our department. You know, he sets policies, you know, he holds a high position, um, you know, as the chairman of the FPC. And um, when the detective called him out on that, uh, Stephen DeVogus acted the way he normally does. And, um, you he know- He did a tap dance, right? <laughs> he did, he did, as I'm doing the tap dance too a little bit, but uh, yeah, yeah he, he did. And well, that's, um, that's beyond the conflict of interest. That's that's like well, the definition of a conflict of interest. Well, it, the funny thing about it is um, our union, the, the Milwaukee Police Association, we did file an ethics complaint against Stephen DeBogus. Um, it was going through the whole process with our ethics commission um, up until the point he decided to resign his seat um, on the FPC. And as soon as he resigned his seat, that ended that investigation. Um, so 
what I what I put in the allegation against uh, Stephen DeVogus, um, he skated. I, I, there's nothing else, no other way to say it. He skated. And um, there are things that he has done um, that uh, he shouldn't have done. And it's very unfortunate. And um, he's hurt a lot of people, namely Chief Morales and, the, and this department with what he's done. Is Morales doing, I'm assuming, right? I'm sorry, say that again. Morales has a lawsuit pending? He does, yes. Yeah, and I, I would tend to think he would stand to fare pretty well based on a violation of circumventing a state law, right? Oh, absolutely, and um, the city attorney that's here um, pretty much said so, in, in not in so many words, but he pretty much said so. And um, now there's this big battle between the city attorney's office and the FPC and and uh, now in the court system. And um, I I will say good luck to Chief Morales and I hope he gets everything he needs uh, from the city. Well, hopefully the courts don't play politics and they address it because we call what's occurring with you is white shirt immunity. They, they do it, you know, the, the department brass the elected officials we had it in ccrb down here where one of the attorneys who's actually the head of our civilian complaint review board was steering lawsuits to a firm to which he was affiliated with and ultimately suing cops that he found guilty and um he didn't think there was anything wrong with it neither did the idiot may that we have here and um eventually there was enough pressure and he screwed something else up where he was forced to step down um but yeah, I guess when they get in these positions, they feel it's okay to do what they want to do and get away with it. Um, how's that's, this? The that's chief? our city attorney too, so yeah. he's in a position. Like that. Yeah. <laughs> it could be. Could Jeff be. Norman is your new chief. Uh, Jeff Norman, yes, he's yeah. uh, he's labeled as an intern, right? At least as of right now. And but he's representing the department from where Morales was. Correct. Yes. And and how is he doing as far as the rank and file goes? Um. He, he's uh, interesting. Um, I've known him also my whole 25 years. <laughs> um, he, uh, he, the way I would describe him is, um, in, and I like him as a person, um, but in this role as the acting chief or interim chief, um, I don't think he should be there. Um, and I think that's pretty strong words for him because I do like him. Um, I, I think um, he's trying to do everything possible to please everybody right now. At least that's what it looks like to me. Um, not only us, the department, the common council, the mayor's office, everybody, and also, you know, social programs out there. Um, Chief Norman uh, originally applied for the position for chief. And he, uh, for some reason, and we don't know why, but he got cut from that position. And uh, when they uh, recently had to promote somebody into the interim police chief spot, he was basically the last one standing. Uh, a lot of people left. So he's he's in that position right now. Um, and it's kind of, it's a little weird because our FPC can't make up their mind and pick a chief out of the two that two candidates we had and one of those two candidates has now left and went i uh, got another job and we don't we don't know what we're doing yeah. uh, it's it, it 
it just looks like we're screwed up, you know, not the police department, but the other, you know, common council, the FPC and stuff like that. They, they can't make up their mind of who they want as a chief. And um, I, I think uh, Jeff Norman will probably get the permanent spot um, and we'll have to go from there. Um, we'll see what happens. Uh, he claims he wants to work with us, which is, I guess, good. Um, but uh, again, we got to keep him at arm's length away from us, too, uh, to make sure he, we keep him on task of what he should be doing. Well, if you're short of candidates, I can probably go through our phone book and send you a whole bunch of people we'd like to get. <laughs> no, thank you. We're having too many problems already. Everyone's going to be looking for a job on the top of the NYPD. <laughs> yeah, I, I can. I can definitely give you quite a few names. Um, yeah. The first thing they should look for is someone who has a spine and is willing to be a leader. That's the easiest part of, it, of looking for a candidate. I, um, I completely the agree. Part of finding a candidate that fulfills that obligation. Right. You know, it, it's um, it, it seems that they strive to become a chief. And then as soon as they go, they take a huge haircut and they, they just forget where they come from and they start mm -hmm. implementing stupid policies and they become believers in these stupid policies. It's, it's really um, ironic how grown men who have really faced death and violence and stuff throughout their careers sell their souls for 15 minutes of fame. And right. it, it really is ironic that they just become true believers and the stupidity that's being sold to them and shoved down their throats just to walk around and say, I'm the chief. And, and I agree. And, you know, and that's what was nice about Chief Morales being in this position. He wasn't a politician. Um, he didn't give in to stuff. Um, you know, he handled his business. Um, if he saw something that wasn't right, he told you. Um, but he he didn't bow. He didn't bow over for. Um, the politicians out there, the common council or the mayor's office, he did what he thought was right for this department. And we don't have them anymore. And right now, who knows what we have? <laughs> it, it's kind of scary. In our department, it's made very clear that the upper echelon of the police department either accepts the reforms or they're told to go, go packing, either retire, resign, do whatever you got to do. If you don't, you know, it's, it used to be get on the train or, or get off, right? Stand up with a table and accept the reform, and they all seem to bend over the table. It, right. Yeah. Go under the table. It, it's it, it's unbelievable what we're seeing from uh, grown men. I, I mean, there's our, one of our deputy commissioners, well-known investigator. Um, you know, the, the same was always it. If you were ever killed on his job, you'd want him to catch the case. Um, he's now uh, belittled himself to the point of following social media accounts of cops um, just to see if he can say, gotcha. Um, this is what's going on in, in the NYPD. Um, you know, it, it's sad because, you know, I've never worked with you or any member of your department, but we've all did something similar by knocking on a door, stopping a car, and you don't forget that. Apparently, when you get to those positions, you forget that. And, right. and it's it's sad because they're putting guys' lives online. It didn't, you know, the men and women are always under scrutiny and they second guess them right away. I mean, even the, the chief that's in um, Minnesota right now with this unfortunate accident this past weekend, um, 
you know, apparently he didn't come out strong enough condemning the shooting, but he called it what it was, an accident and allowed due process to take place, which is what anybody in the country is entitled to, except police officers. Um, Correct. I, I'm told he resigned. So, um, you know, it's a catch-22 in many, many ways for, for what takes place. What's the relationship like between your officers and the mayor? Um, none. <laughs> There's no relationship. Um, I, the, the mayor here, uh, Mayor Barrett, um, he is democratic. Um, he, uh, he doesn't have a backbone. Um, he, he can't stand up to anybody and tell them what truly is going on. Um, he, he's going to go down, um, in history for having a trolley cart. And, um, he did that a couple of years ago. Uh, very few people ride it. Uh, even before COVID-19, very few people rode the, the trolley. They maybe get on it for one time, try it out, and that's it. Um, but, it, you know, he, he's going to he, – the mayor's receiving a $408 million from the federal government, and he wants to put the money into the trolley. And, you know, we had an alderman who yelled and screamed and said, what are you doing with this trolley? Let's get rid of it. Well, he got voted out. So uh, there is a lot there, or at least there was a couple of years ago, a lot of people yelling and screaming about th having this trolley. And um, he went ahead and built it anyways. And, uh, um, you know, I've always said in tw my 25 years, this city, the Milwaukee uh, region here, they're afraid of change. Um, once somebody gets into a position of leadership, and I use the, the term leadership loosely, um, they're afraid to change them out. So you have common council people who stay in for years upon years. The mayor has been here, I think, 16 years, and he, he hasn't done anything for this city, um, along with the common council. They haven't done anything for the city. Um, and it, it's very unfortunate. There is a lot of things that they could do, and they just never did it. Dale, you're talking about millions of dollars being put into a trolley, and um, your council had the opportunity to receive, I think it was like a $30 million grant, was it? And they turned it down? Um, yeah, um, there was a $30 million COPS grant for um, our officers. I, I, I take that back, a $10 million uh, COPS grant program. Uh, that was enough to give us 30 officers uh, in the academy. And um, the Common Council went back and forth quite a bit about it. And they turned, it, they said they weren't going to take it. Then there's some chatter they were. Then more pushback saying, no, they're not going to take it. Um, they, they did eventually take it. Um, but I think um, one of the main, main reasons why they took it they found out from Madison, the Madison Republicans, that if you don't take this thing, you're probably not going to get another dime from Madison. So they took it. And, uh, you know, all they're worried about right now is our pension, because that was the biggest deal with the with the 30 officers. What are we going to do, you know, 20, 30 years down the road with the pension? So 
they didn't they didn't want to take it only for that pension reason and they were kind of forced to take it because the republicans told them they should probably take that money it, it's interesting that they worry about the pension 30 years down the line because most of them are not here 30 years down the line correct and what they continue to do is they do not need the actuarial funding in pensions this is going on across the country mm -hmm. They're borrowing from the pension funds to fund their social projects and right. they're shorting the pension funds. And then they look to get us to contribute more to it. So it's interesting that they're worried about the pension when they implement programs and mis mismanage most of the city budgets, the health benefits, um, the everyday social programs are out there. Uh, I'm sure that if you, sat with some type of forensic accountant and, and looked at how these monies get spent. Um, they're really being mismanaged and wasted. So, you know, they probably use the pension as a means of denying the money, but uh, they're always attacking our pension funds here for to borrow money. And, um, you know, we're worth billions and, um, but we pay into these things and people forget that they think that it's just free money that's coming in your direction and it's not. Right. Right. Um, luckily for at least with our pension, the city hasn't figured out a way to borrow from it yet, but the city is supposed to contribute their portion to it. And you should look at the assumption rates on these right. because what they do, and, and I believe they're doing it here in New York, and we're trying to convince others to believe it. They give you an assumption rate of, say, you know, 7%, mm -hmm. uh, but it should be 9%, and try getting the data. Um, so, you know, and, and I do know that this is occurring across the country. So, you know, and it's, it's throughout a lot of states that they're short funding these pensions. Mm -hmm. And what we seem to believe is that they're playing with the assumption rate. So you may want to take a look at that. Yeah, they um, I, our city has gone probably 15 years without contributing any money into the pension. There you go. And that you're absolutely correct. You know, and that's probably where they're they're um, taking the money from. Um, but uh, they're, they're facing a large dollar amount they're going to have to contribute in a couple of years, and they're freaking out. You know, uh, the Common Council's scared to death of what they're going to do, and um, as a result, because of the large amount that they're going to have to contribute, they're not going to hire any officers. We got 30 officers that are going to go into an academy probably this fall, and we've had Common Council uh, members who said, that's all you're getting. And we're losing officers left and right now. Um, it, it doesn't pay for an officer to stick around um, past 25 years anymore. And uh, it's it's unfortunate for the city of Milwaukee and the citizens of Milwaukee. It's, it's too risky, too, with all the stuff going on that they could lose everything. Like the young right. lady who got involved in a shooting with 26 years on. You know, it's, uh, it's a tragedy. You know, another thing that I just wanted to mention, and we're seeing this nationally, is... They're demonizing police for doing what we know as proactive police work. In mm -hmm. fact, what led to this shooting was they pulled this car over because he had an expired registration sticker. Now, those are the type of things that can lead to, you know, uh, in this case, a wanted felon. He's wanted on a warrant, right? Guns in the car. That wasn't in this case. But we all know that, you know, we were taught to uh, shake the tree and things come out of the tree. If they're right. going to deny police from doing proactive police work, then the people that suffer is the public, you know? 
Correct. The public are the ones that are endangered by people driving around DWI, people driving around with guns in their car, you know, criminals going back and forth committing robberies. If cops aren't allowed or they're not going to encourage them to pull them over or to do proactive police work, it is the public that's going to suffer. Uh, you, you're correct. And uh, we see it here quite a bit. You know, our officers are not doing the same activity that they did before. Um, they're not stopping the cars um, during the COVID. And it's still going on, but we couldn't stop cars for unregistered plates. It's an order that came down from, you know, one of the chief judges. So um, our officers are not out there actively looking for people like we used to in the past. And, um, you know, a lot of good arrests came out of it from being able to do that. And our officers are not doing it because every time they do something, our officers has has to think of whether or not they are, their backs are protected by somebody. And right, right. now, unfortunately with the exception of cops backing cops, they're not, they're not being backed by anybody else. And well, even uh, that's no, no, no knock banning, no knock warrants. A no knock warrant is to protect the lives of the officers. Cause it's, you know, we all remember the three E's, right? Evidence and danger escape. That was the reason for a search right. warrant. Right. And right. Uh, the reason for no knock is because the guy behind that door is dangerous and we don't want to give him a right. chance to get us. So we're going to get, you know, it's a no knock. They don't want you doing those anymore. Well, it, yeah, exactly. You're right. We're also dealing with the qualified immunity, the removal of it. So when you're looking at not being able to stop cars, um, you know, having your hands tied, uh, okay, that's what you want us to do, but who's the real losers in this is going to be a general public. Um, you know, the city of Chicago is banning foot pursuits. They don't want you chasing anybody. Uh, I mean, this is what's taking place there. So, you know, I could snatch a bag, I could do a robbery, and the cops come, and I take off running, just keep running. We don't have to chase you. I mean, we're going to go back to, like, the 1920s old movies where all the cops coming out of station house responding. <laughs> that, that's what right. this is going to turn into. Um, but, you know, I had a conversation today with one of the sergeants in, in this department, and, you know, they were talking about who's to blame, the elected officials, um, you know, the different protest groups, and he, he brought up a really excellent point. He said he doesn't hold any of them accountable. He said they're doing what they are choosing to do. But he's holding the voters accountable because they allow the elected officials to stay in office. They vote them mm -hmm. back into office. And, you know, you're electing people who are totally incompetent. Um, we probably have one of the most incompetent mayors in the country. He got elected we do. a second term. And. When you think about that, I mean, you weren't pissed off enough at him in the first term, so you reelected him for a second term. And ultimately what happened is voters are not coming out to vote. So now when they have homeless standing in their lobby, um, you have the mentally ill um, walking through their stores and disrupting the people who are there to spend money and uh, do business. Or worse yet, I mean, in New York, there's Bleecker Street, is the equivalent of Rodeo Drive or Worth Avenue in, in Palm Beach. It had all the big stores, Prada, Chanel, all the big, big stores. It's boarded up, um, graffiti all over, and none of these stores are coming back. And I just learned today that in in Midtown Manhattan, in Fifth Avenue, um, the 
the Fifth Avenue Business Association and it makes up the big stores like Prater and Chanel and these types of places, they pay a, a billion dollars a year in tax to the city of New York in wow. one small area, a billion. It's 5% of the tax revenue coming from a small section of Manhattan. The Peninsula Hotel, beautiful hotel, is not reopening. Um, this is just blocks from Central Park blocks from the tree lighting that occurs in Rockefeller Center. So we can sit and blame the politicians. We can blame the, you know, psycho people that are running through the streets. Um, I'm not supposed to say that, but um, we can put all of the blame on them. But ultimately, it's the voter that's allowing it to happen. It's the silent majority that thinks this is just going to go away. And it's not just going to go away. It's coming closer to you. And you continue to let it happen. And you continue right. to blame the police. And it's not the police. Don't blame us. Don't blame us. Right. You know, you did it. And you know what I saw? I just saw a video of it the other day. And it brought back flashbacks from my days in RIP and anti-crime. Two guys uh, on a mini bike. Or, you know, a little, a little like Vespa. Snatching a woman's chain in the crosswalk. Yeah. I mean, that's bad. They, they just discovered. Right. I don't know if they were taught that by their grandfather or whoever. Yeah, training they, tape. They're back. They're back. I, I saw that, and that's going to become common. I mean, the we're now seeing vehicles on milk crates. I mean, they're taking the tires off them, they're stripping the cars down, and this is in De Blasio's New York. And and I I do I blame you know not just the voter, but I I do blame our commissioners and our chiefs because they know better. They do know better, and you know our homicide rate is skyrocketing here. And you know I've had conversations with people that. You know, they say, well, you know, the poorer communities are used to the shootings. Um, you know, it's not that it's different, but there's more of them. That, that's not an answer. You know, there are sons and daughters, even if they're, they're junkies and they're gang, you know, people that are shooting out each other, they still belong to some family that's going to feel for that. And, you know, murder is murder. So because of all these, you know, policies, you know, we're not out looking for the guns. We're worried about being sued. We have to take a hands-off approach. Um, and, and then, you know, idiot de Blasio is blaming COVID in his latest press conference. He doesn't want to talk about it. Um, this is what's happening. And this is happening across the country. It's happening in Seattle. I mean, we, we were with Mike Solon last week, and same thing's happening there. And we're finding it that it's happened, you know, in all of these cities, mostly Democratic cities. You're correct. And um, it's very unfortunate that, we have to do hands off on everything. Um, you know, when I came on 25 years ago, I, we were always hands on and this, you know, the people that we dealt with each and every day knew that and they were afraid of that. And, and I'm not saying we, you know, we beat up everybody or any of that stuff, not at all, but um, you know, you arrested them. You gave him a citation. You gave, you, you took him to jail. Whatever it took. You You didn't have buckets of water being thrown on you. you right. And, and nowadays, um, you know, the officers are, are not able to do that on a regular basis. So, unfortunately, people become emboldened and they, you know, continue to do whatever they want to do. And they, you know, I call it they terrorize our officers. They'll get, sit there, yell, scream, you know, throw stuff at our officers and, and things like that. And nobody should have anything thrown at them. 
you know, nobody should have it, you know, have comments and things thrown at an officer or even just a citizen. And, it, and it's very unfortunate the way things are now compared to even a year and a half ago. It's well, it's getting worse. To realize if they do it to us, then what stands between you and them once mm -hmm. we're not there? And they seem to forget that. Dale, you ran a letter that was pretty impressive. Um, I think it changed, you know, the way things were going there in Milwaukee. I, I believe you ran it in the paper. You appealed to the public, basically telling them what was going to happen with less police officers on a street. Um, you know, the public wants police. You know it. I know it. Bill knows it. When you ran that letter, what was the response you got from that? Um, I had, you know, several of the newspaper people and uh, TV channels reach out and ask questions about it. Um, I, I think it's the letter I apologize. I think I apologize to the citizens. Because they they were on the risk of a very good risk of being potential victims, and um, you know the whole point of the letter was somebody's got to stand up and say something to them and explain exactly what's going to happen. Unfortunately, to people, and uh, um, if nobody says anything to them, they're not going to know it until it's too late. You asked them to call the alderman and express their concerns. Did that happen? Um, no, none. Um, actually, the two aldermen um, reached out and the other 13, not a peep from them. Yeah. And that and that's, that's pretty typical. Well, I think, I think that's what, that needs to happen in New York City too, because we have a lot of clowns on the city council. And the fact that they can even tell the police how to do their job is beyond me. I mean, when the police, in the summer when they had those riots and they used a, a technique to separate the two crowds and uh, the people that were against us called it kettling. But that's a technique that if you could split the crowd, that's a police technique. We're a paramilitary organization. We do what works. They were like saying that wasn't fair because it worked. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, we are being second guessed for um, doing what we know. We don't tell a mechanic how to fix an engine. Um, we don't tell the fire department how to proceed with a fire. We don't even walk into the schools and tell teachers how they should teach children, right? We don't do that. But every person out there that critiques the police seems to be an expert. And to the best of my knowledge, none of them have police experience. They've, they've never rode in a patrol car, never knocked on the door, never volunteered as an auxiliary or any of these things. But they know everything there is about policing. And they ultimately make these decisions that are putting people's lives in danger, particularly ours. And I think the proof is kind of in the pudding right now because we have seen, uh, I think there's over a hundred police officers shot so far in the country. And, and you know, that's not from our poor tactics. Um, you know, we always hear a call for more training. The truth of it is cops want more training but we don't get the training because it requires you not being on patrol. It becomes right. expensive. We need to train in large numbers and it's on a pretty regular basis. So then when it goes bad, what's the first thing the civil attorneys look at is what kind of training did they have? And we talk about, you know, training, 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 and you know, the departments in the city will come out with all the documents saying we were trained, but we were not trained to the best of the training that exists. 
Um, that being said, the governor of Wisconsin, Tony Evers, he introduced police reforms in the wake of the Kenosha protest, banning chokeholds, no-knock search warrants, all of those things. Um, what other forms were implemented in Wisconsin now? Um, the no-knock um, search warrants, you, you touched that a little bit. That's in the process of uh, happening, and they've changed a lot of the rules. Um, you know, um, he, he's in the, again, we kind of, um, we're kind of lucky. We have Republicans, uh, in Madison kind of watching the whole thing for us and they make the corrections needed. Um, you know, Evers wants to change some stuff and, um, he hasn't fully done it yet. Um, but you know, everybody, there's task force out there. We have a, a Republican um, legislator that started a task force and they're looking at our, all of our policies and they're discussing it and, and trying to figure out what other stuff that they can change. Um, Evers uh, pretty much leaves us alone. Um, and it's hard to say that, but he pretty much leaves us alone because because um, he's got the mayor here in the common council and the FPC here who takes control of our department. Um, but it, it's, so it's not so much from him, you know, he's trying to do a couple things and check and to change a couple things, but we do have, um, you know, our common council who wants more things changed. Um, you know, the chokeholds is a big one. Um, they don't want us to use chokeholds at all. And, it, it kind of stems not necessarily from um, the incident last year, but we had an off-duty officer involved in a case with a chokehold here in Milwaukee. So, you know, we're, we're getting it more local, at least at this moment. Um, I think Evers is, a, is afraid of his own shadow, <laughs> to be honest with you. So he's not really pushing it as bad, but um, I, I think coming up here soon in the next you know, a few months, we're going to start getting changes that uh, a lot of the politicians, um, the local politicians want. And uh, it, when they make changes, it's not good for our department. It's not good for the citizens of Milwaukee. You know, one of the comments I'm, I'm just looking at is that the politicians seem to be in competition with each other um, to who can come up with the best reform policies. Um, do you think any of that's happening? In Milwaukee, absolutely. I think so. Um, the FPC, who our Fire and Police Commission, who is supposed to uh, look at all of our SO, our standard operating procedures and, and rules for our department, the Common Council doesn't trust them. So they fight all the time about things. Um, you know, and then you have the mayor who obviously is spineless and he doesn't know what to do. Um, but um, you know, there are several, or at least I know one member of our common council who potentially wants to run for a state position. And so you always hear her talking and she really doesn't have anything good to say. Um, but we do have quite a few people who um, are looking at trying to go higher than what they're at. And you can see that there is some tension, but they'll work together and do whatever it takes against the department. 
And I don't think that's fair to our, our coppers at no. all. No. Bill, a question for you. I mean, you, many years in the street, homicide, um, you see everything that's taken place now in New York City, right? All these political policies being put in place. Um, yet we still see police officers out there trying to do their job. Um, we see these foot chases going on. Um, we're hearing about the shootings, which, I mean, you really don't have a choice when that's happening to you. Um, but now we have, you know, qualified immunity. We have the diaphragm bill. Um, I personally think that police officers are jeopardizing their own freedom by extending themselves when they're not in a situation of perfection, being beyond 100 percent correct. Um, what do you think about that? You know, I, I think that to answer the first question, I think that police came on this job for all the right reasons and they want to do their job. They want to be the real police. You know, they want to fight crime. They want to arrest the offenders. But now the game has changed because especially with qualified immunity, one of the things that they specifically mentioned was bad searches. So those gun searches on the stop, question and frisk, someone that has no police experience is going to decide that they didn't think you had reasonable suspicion to stop that guy because you didn't come up with a gun. But guess what? You know, you've come up with other guns and you, you saw what you saw in your eyes. You're an experienced street cop, but you're putting yourself, your family in jeopardy and jeopardy of being sued and not also reusing force. My God, the diaphragm law, it cannot stand. That has to be changed. That you put your own freedom in jeopardy, too. I mean, they're, they're indicting people. They're trying to make arrest of cops. Um, I mean, look at this this officer in Minnesota. Um, I, I don't have the exact number, but I'm going to be close to it. That last year, over 220,000 people died at the hands of surgeons and police involved incidents. Uh, shootings, I could be off on some of the facts here, but the numbers are, are close. Police involved death, 900 and change. Not one conversation has occurred about what's taking place with surgeons. And people I've spoken to said, well, you know, you sign a waiver. Well, when we sign a waiver to get the surgery, it's not, it's like, it's okay to kill me in the process if something goes wrong. Um, we, when we go on patrol, don't go out there with the idea of who am I going to kill today? Things right. happen. In, in Minnesota, and again, I don't know the facts, but, um, you know, on the assumption that this is an accident, uh, we have an officer that just now gets arrested for an accident. That it, it, It's part of what does happen. If, if you're in a pursuit and, you know, you, you accidentally run somebody over, it's an accident. Um, you know, I'm curious as to what the policies are there, because I understand that the taser and the firearm are on the same side, one above the other. And I think they're the same color. So I, I don't know if that's true, but that's what I'm hearing. Um, so I'm curious to see what the fact pattern becomes. Well, you know, Ed, now the ambulance chases are not just attorneys, they're politicians. <laughs> they're all commenting the day of or the day after this incident happened, they're all jumping on the bandwagon where they don't even know what the facts are. Well, nobody does. We really don't. We weren't there. So we don't know. Um, you know, we're all still curious as to what the facts are going to come out in, in um, the Floyd case. Um, you know, I, I haven't been following that in detail, but we don't know. And we, we started in a Freddie Gray case, um, you know, five cops arrested and, you know, they were all acquitted. 
Um, what is a problem, though, and, and I just had this conversation yesterday, is that our messaging is really being directed in a wrong place. And I, and I do agree with that, that, you know, we are talking about what occurs and we're doing that now. But we're not in the communities trying to explain it to the people who are actually the victims. You know, we make these statements about what's occurring and everything we've said here tonight, you know, is pretty accurate as to what occurs in the street. But we don't have the credibility to be trusted on what we're saying because the news media takes an incident, they run with it, they label it, and it becomes gospel. And it turns out down the line that it's not factual. And, you know, we could look at the case in Baltimore where the five police officers were indicted. It did not come out the way it was sold to the nation. And what took place in the city of Baltimore were riots, stores being burned, businesses put out, and they still haven't recovered from that. So the failure to tell the truth had an adverse impact. But I think as police unions, we cannot rely on these ballish chiefs that we have to tell the story. I think we need to be into the community. We need to be able to talk to the people in the community. And we need to be able to listen because some of the fears they have are, are real. I get it. Um, but we're not the bad guy. And I don't think that we're getting that message across. I don't know, Dale, do you agree? Do you see anything similar to that? No, I, I completely agree with you. Um, I, and um, at least the media sources out here, I, you never see anything good about an officer. The only time you see anything about an officer is when they did something wrong or uh, they were involved in an accident or, or, or anything like that. It's never anything good. And, um, and, I, and I put the blame here, at least in, in Milwaukee, I put the blame on, I guess, myself. You're right. I'm not out in the community enough to explain to them um, why an officer went and arrested somebody, you know, and give what the reason is. And in, instead, they just think of whatever they want to. You know, you came here and arrested my dad or my mom or whatever. And we we got to do a better job of explaining what our duties are and what our officers are supposed to be doing. Uh so that the citizens understand that. Otherwise, they're just going to watch the news and they're only going to hear it from the news or politicians. There's also the, uh, the whole thing is, too, is that the narrative is being controlled by the media. We had a case in New York City where the Warren Squad did a takedown of this perp, textbook takedown, and they, they collared him, and he, they were criticized by the mayor, the news media, and it was a beautiful arrest with basically no force, but they didn't like the way it looked. Right. And, and we we have that with our media sources here, too. Um, as I said, it's always bad. You know, they always have to report something bad. And, and it's kind of funny when the COVID first hit, they always wanted a story from us, always wanted this and that. And you give them a story and then it started turning against the cops and they don't call anymore. Right. You know, I got a call today from a media source. And they wanted to know about chokeholds and how bad is a chokehold? You know, wh what are you going to do if they eliminated a chokehold from, you know, your guys' use of, you know, of using chokeholds? And um, I got done talking to her and I was like, that 
you're just going to report something bad about police again. I, I can already see it just based on the questions asked. So um, it's very unfortunate. And, and um, you know, in a way I see, you know, like I said, myself not doing the proper job for my officers and I need to get out there and explain the situation. Just, well, it's not, it's not just you. It's the messaging that, that comes from, you know, department leadership too. Because, you know, over here, um, you know, in New York, we send cops out dancing. That's what we do. You know, we have videos of them dancing. Um, we send them to street events or into uh, some type of a social environment. And, you know, we let them dance and, you know, take photos. And uh, so in my view, it's staged. You know, like I'm really curious how when you see a Twitter photo of a police officer, you know, helping someone across the street and it shows up on Twitter. Like if you and I are working together, do I say, take a picture of this or do mm -hmm. I walk them across the street and then say, wait, let me get the guy with the camera. Let's do this again. Because it's an unnatural act when that happens. It's not genuine right. when that's being done. And, and I tend to think that, you know, they watch a lot of TV, the general public, you know, the top 10 shows on TV were police shows. So you hear all the time, well, they could have shot him in a leg. And you know how hard it is to shoot somebody that's shooting at you? And and this is the theory that we should shoot you in a leg or resist an arrest. You know, no one talks about that. You know, when you look at the, the common denominator with these police-involved shootings, one of the major common denominators is resist an arrest. If you don't resist, you know, and it's not that, and I've heard people say, well, you, you don't have to kill them for it. Well, that's not what happens. You know, people die in car accidents because they were speeding, okay? doesn't mean that, you know, that they just crashed on purpose. It's a contributing factor that led to a crash. Resisting arrest is a contributing factor that sometimes leads to the death of someone, even a police officer. But mm -hmm. we don't talk about that. And I think we always need to run, as a city, public service announcement that educate the public as to what we see that they don't see. I'm sure if you walk down the block with a civilian um, and ask them what they saw, they're going to either say, what do you mean? Or they're going to say the kid screaming in the middle of the block. You'll be able to tell them I saw two red cars, one white car, a UPS worker, and a lady looking out the window. You see everything. They don't understand what our training and years in the street have led us to see from the street. And I think we need to do a better job of educating the public about that. And in the same process, we educate our own cops as to what occurs in the community because that's missing. You know, I had a quick question and someone actually asked me this last week to ask you this question. What's, what are the ramifications of the legalization of marijuana right now in regards to our law enforcement officers? Well, that's a question that is going to come up. Um, as you know, and I'm going to assume it's the same for you, Dell, that it's a condition of employment. Um, the police officers are not allowed to smoke marijuana, not allowed to do drugs, right? I mean, right. You, you have to be fit for duty. Um, fit for duty is the generic answer. Um, if an officer shows up for work drunk, he's not fit for duty, but he's not in violation of law. Right. So if an officer shows up for work and, you know, test positive on a drug test for marijuana, 
he can still be fit for duty because the marijuana would be in his, you know, body from, you know, a month ago, two months ago. You know, it, it doesn't mean that you're not coherent enough to perform your duties today. So I think this is going to be a problem going forward. Um, you know, you have it as a condition of employment. I think you're going to see this change somewhere along the line where you just can't show up for work um, and you're unfit for duty. I mean, you can't, you know, smoke marijuana and then show up at a roll call 15 minutes later. I get that. Um, do I think police officers should be smoking? No, I don't. I don't think they should. But you wanted the law passed. You, you, you know, legislators have pushed this law so that it's legal for people to do. But no one's talking for the mom in the playground who has her children playing and someone is sitting on a bench smoking marijuana. Who speaks for that person? So they left out a lot of um, open questions here. Um, and ultimately, Bill, I want to be paid for it. Uh, I'm going to ask for money. We, you know, you're, you, there's issues to it. But, um, you know, if it's a condition of employment, then pay us. Because the other end of it is you're holding us to a different standard of law. Than right. other, and I'm against it, to be quite honest with you. I'm against it because I do believe it's the gateway drug. Um, I did research on what it did to the state of Colorado. Um, you know, the, the employment, the restaurants, people move there just so that they could, you know, be a part of a, you know, legalized marijuana. I think there's a need for it. You know, people, there's a medical need for it. But if you're that parent in the playground and people just decide to sit there and smoke in front of your kids and you're against it, who speaks for that parent? And it's going to be an issue. And we also have no way of determining who's driving under the influence of marijuana. As that we was did. my next question. Right. We have no way. And look, I, I spoke right in Washington, D.C. on this topic, and there is no um, specific device that can detect that you just smoke pot or you have it in your system. So, you know, I get what's going on. I, I do think that the people who are promoting it from the elected officials' perspective because it's a money stream for the taxes, um, they're totally mistaken because in Colorado, it, it cost the state a lot of money and it drew people from um, other states. Uh, the hospitalization went up, accidents went up, unemployment, and um, cartels were operating in an open free market still doing business and they had the protection of the law. So there's so much, we actually have a documentary working on for that to put out. Um, it's going to become a problem here, but again, welcome to de Blasio's New York city. You know, and I heard they also did something a little sneaky that if you have a gun permit and you apply for a marijuana card, you will lose your gun permit. Really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So doesn't that tell you that there's something wrong with the law? Yeah, you I don't have a gun permit and own a restaurant which has a liquor license, right? We have liquor stores sure. that have gun permits. So, you know, you want to push this through, but yet you're acknowledging there's a problem and you won't play it fair all the way along the line. And, you know, look, a lot of elected officials, um, you know, received a lot of money from lobbyists to get this through. And, you know, they can call it what they want. But they're getting paid for this. And I don't think that they're speaking for that parent, that child, um, the people who are, are against it. 
Um, you know, in some ways it's harmless. I get it. It's harmless if it's inside. It's harmless if it's being used for medical purposes. I, I know it, it, it's being dealt with for, you know, children who have issues. But um, I don't think they've really did the right thing in a sense of looking at everyone's interest for it. And uh, we're going to see this as it develops further. Well, we should answer last week's question. Yeah. <laughs> we won't do next week either. Dale, I, we were talking about chokeholds a little while ago. Um, you know, I, I did an interview with an MMA uh, fighter in, in Las Vegas, um, was a champion, explained the whole thing. His dad was a cop. And um, we did a documentary on it, and I, I could provide you with all the information. That there is a huge misconception about chokeholds. Mm -hmm. uh, our governor here tried to pass a law that would have had a police officer arrested if they applied a chokehold. Um, under extreme circumstances. And uh, I, I had explained to him that if you had an individual, um, and let's make it up in a sense of a domestic where uh, the male was the size of a, uh, a real large football player, and one of the police officers, male, female, was a lot smaller, and this individual is beating on his wife, um, the only means you may have of getting him under control would be to put him in a chokehold, mm -hmm. uh, but possibly saving somebody's life. And, you know, that could happen in the course of uh, an incident like that. And, you know, to my astonishment, it, it seemed like it was foreign. It, they didn't even think about this. Um, and they, they changed some language for the law. But, you know, a chokehold from experts done properly purely just puts you to sleep. It doesn't crush your carotid arteries and, you know, the bones in your throat. Um, and, and, you know, kill you. It just basically puts you to sleep quickly and ends the situation and wakes you up. And I'll be happy to send you all of that information if it helps. Sure. Uh, yeah, I appreciate it. And, you know, we're going through a huge chokehold uh, issue right now, you know, and like I said earlier, we had an off-duty officer that applied a chokehold and the, the, the gentleman ended up dying. Um, but, we're trying to change SOP, our standard operating procedure um, regarding chokeholds. And, you know, it's going to go before the uh, Fire and Police Commission tomorrow. And um, we as a union, we added a line in there to protect our officers um, through state statute um, that they will not be charged if they use the chokehold as the very last means. And they also uh, use the chokehold to save their life or save a citizen's life. And um, there are quite a few people who are out there that uh, I don't believe in chokeholds and they're voicing their opinions to our, our FPC. And I don't know how they're gonna handle it. I don't know what they're gonna do tomorrow, um, but you know, we need to have that protection for our officers if they happen to use it. Sure, they're gonna get investigated no matter what, but you know, if it comes out that the chokehold was good, I, I want my officers protected, you know, and they're not going to get charged. So um, most importantly, make sure that they get the proper training for chokeholds. And, and that training doesn't, you know, my chokehold training was 39 years ago. I never got mm -hmm. it. Um, you, you should be updated training and people need to know exactly what a chokehold is um, because there's a huge misunderstanding of what chokeholds are. 
Yeah, I've never used a chokehold. I've never been cha- trained in a chokehold, so I probably would never go to a chokehold. But our our issue is if it's the last resort, if it's the last the absolute last thing I need to use to save my life or a citizen's life, I'm going to use it. And most of the officers said they will do the same thing too if they absolutely have to, and then let the cards fall where they fall. But Dale, you, know, from you, should, you should be covered under justification for that. You know, for us, it's Article 35, you know, the use of deadly physical force. If someone's using that against you, you're allowed mm-hmm. to use deadly physical force against them. And I mean, they, I don't see how they can write, but you can't do this, you can't do that, and you can't do this, you know? <laughs> right. And, and that's what we're trying to get um, accomplished and, and make sure our coppers are take, you know taken care of so they're not going to get prosecuted if, you know, if it's used. Right. So we'll see what happens. Uh, I'm not sure how they're going to handle it. I'll tell you how they're going to handle it. They're going to ban it. That's what they're going to oh, do. More than likely, yeah. If, if they give in to what the citizens want um, or some of these social groups that want, they're probably going to ban it. Yeah. And it's, that's very unfortunate. And I just don't want to see an officer die because he questioned, he or she questioned whether they can use that chokehold or not. So uh, look, I, we already I, had an officer Colin here for that, right, Ed? It was uh, the gardening case yeah. with Pantaleo. And then we yeah. had the incident in the Rockaways. Right. The officer got out around the uh, uh, the perp's neck. And the guy was pretty much a violent, mentally ill individual. And um, they, uh, they they fired him, didn't they? they had him yeah. 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 It's It just doesn't it, – it, what it comes down to is what doesn't appear to look nice on camera and – followed by a series of chiefs and commissioners and elected officials who refuse to call it what it is. And you become expendable. Um, you know, the Gardner case changed the world in many ways. It changed the world. Um, you know, when you talk about selling Lucy cigarettes, um, yeah, it's a crime, but is it a crime that someone should lose their life for? No. Did Pantaleo go there that day to kill somebody? Absolutely not. Um, a lot of the facts in that case never really got out. And it's interesting because it became a political case. And our department, um, you know, they talk about the supervisors that were there. Um, you know, they, they, they broke a lot of rules on what was occurring. And, you know, people escaped out the door. White shirt immunity prevailed. And, you know, things that should have happened didn't happen. And, and I've heard a lot of rumors of why we were really there that we haven't been able to confirm. But um, it changed policing across the country. Uh, cops became the bad guy. And, you know, we, we ultimately lost, you know, two police officers got assassinated, you know, following protests from that, um, that were incited by, you know, a mayor that, that, really um, allowed the city of New York to get out of control. And he could deny it all he wants, but he's never really been held accountable for that. Um, and it's, it's just not right what, what occurred. Uh, Ed, well, we're, at, we're at an hour and 15 minutes. I don't know if you want to uh, wrap it up. Yeah, we will, Bill. I always like to go ahead. You shoot, Bill. Last word for you. No, I just think, you know, when we look at other cities, we see the national problem of this anti-policing rhetoric that's probably been around for about 
in essence, a, a little more than two years now. And it just seems like it's an attack on cops and not just in New York City, but nationally. And I think that, because Ed's talking about is that the unions really have to unite and fight the powers that be and get out there and give the police version and talk up uh, against the press, who is also an ally of misinformation. You know, we got to get the truth out there. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Um, I'm sorry, <laughs> um, but I do agree with you and um, uh, need to get out there, need to let people understand what an officer does and why he or she is doing the things that they're, they are doing um, and make sure the citizens understand that um, the, the, the officers are not the bad people. You know, um, they're here for a reason. Uh, once the officers are completely gone. Uh, you know, this world's in trouble and um, everybody needs an officer. Um, you know, the way I look at it is who else are you going to call on third shift other than a cop? They're the only ones that are awake. They're the only ones that are going to respond and take care of whatever needs that you have for 24 hours. And, um, you know, once the citizens realize that again, um, I think it's going to be a hard road to go down and to, uh, um, you know, make sure our officers are, are, are okay. And, uh, but that's our jobs to do. we got to make sure our officers are, are, are treated well as best as possible and make sure they're, they're taken care of. Dale, I want to thank you for coming on and um, telling your story. I, um, I think, you know, the police unions across the country are being attacked. Um, we need to work together, and I think we should all be trying to do that more frequently and check the ego at the door and, and make things happen. At the end of the day, um, it's about the cop in the street for us. Um, it's about the public that we serve, and I, I hope that for the viewers who are you know living in our streets, um, we're changing their minds to some degree that the police are not the bad guy. And, you know, for every police officer that's, that's watching, um, if you have a son, a daughter, a husband, a wife that's out there, um, your number one priority is to go home. That's your number one priority. And the politics that we are working under and the pressure we are working under um, will still be there, uh, but do not jeopardize your safety, uh, your family's well-being, or your freedom in this particular climate. And we know you're trying to do the right thing but you need to do it to perfection. And if you cannot do it to perfection, then I urge you to rethink what you're about to do um, and to stay safe so that you can go home. Uh, we need to work on changing the culture that is the anti-police culture. And you know, hopefully things like this will help and messaging across the country will help. So with that being said, Billy, thank you. Dale, thank you. Thank you for all of you who are listening. To, to the point, uh, we will be back again next week. And thank you for your time. Good night, everyone. Thank you. Good night, guys. Thank you. No problem. Take care. Take care.